birthday of American freedom, and I suppose that by now what has been called the star-spangled bonanza that we put on the first part of the year has run down a little, and maybe by now we're putting away the decorations and taking down the banners and lowering the flags and life will get back to abnormal and subnormal because it never is normal these days. Somebody said birthdays tell how long you've been on the road, but they don't tell how far you've traveled. And the big question is how far has America traveled and where is America going and where are we going because we are America. It is not my wish to paint any brighter halo around our founding fathers than they deserve. I know that they were not perfect men. There was a mixture of the faith of the pilgrims and the philosophy of Tom Paine, Christian faith and deism and Puritan austerity and the perfectibility of man. We did not inherit an unmixed blessing, but God overruled it, and they did lay the foundations with a recognition of providence in the affairs of men. Today America stands alone in a hostile world, a world that marvels at the way we are hanging ourselves with our own rope. Corruption in government, the breakdown of the home, pagan education, and moral putrefaction. I used to say that civilization is going to the dogs, but quit that out of respect for dogs. <laughs> there are plenty of people today doing things beneath the dignity of any dog, and I wouldn't want to insult the canine kingdom by any such remark. Of course, all Americans were not going to prayer meeting before the Revolution. There was sin and corruption aplenty, but most of it was changed by the Great Awakening, the revival that preceded the Revolution. We ought to be commemorating that, but most Americans don't even know that it happened and couldn't care less. Those 56 gallant men who pledged their lives and fortunes and sacred honor to sign the Declaration knew well that if it didn't work, it might mean hanging. One of them, Harrison of Virginia, a heavy man, turned to Geary of Massachusetts, a skinny specimen like I am, and said, well, we may hang, but I'm heavy and will die instantly, but I imagine you'll dangle around for quite a while. <clears throat> That was the spirit in which they signed it. Now, there were some gentlemen there, the Olive Branch men, who thought we ought to try to have peaceful coexistence with George III, although, of course, that term hadn't come into existence. Peace at any price. And we still have that kind among us, like the Israelites in Exodus, who said we were better off under Pharaoh. We did have security, and you have it today in the better red than dead talk. Everything is secondary to biological survival now. The main thing is to stay alive. Somebody asked a boy the other day, what do you want to be when you grow up? And with atom bombs in mind, he said, alive. Well, that's a pretty good wish. Peace at any price, better than no peace. Life at any price, better than no life, they tell us. We're willing today to risk our honor to save our hides, and from the way things are going, we may end up with neither hides nor honor. We tell the world that America is a great place with two chickens in every pot and two or three cars in every garage and a fairyland land of plastics and gadgets and giveaway shows and almost every other citizen living on a handout from Washington. If that's all we've got, we're out of bed. 
We ought to tell what it really means to be an American, the price our fathers paid in blood, sweat, and tears, to make this the land of the free and the home of the brave. George Washington's foot sore soldiers didn't stain the snow at Valley Forge just to create a politician's paradise. And Abe Lincoln didn't walk the floor all night long at the White House to pass the time away. It cost the plenty to purchase this freedom, and it may cost more to keep it. It's no time to discuss our American birthright and make light of our liberty. One good way to appreciate this country is visit some other one, and then come back. I like it here, and uh, some of these gentlemen who say they like it better somewhere else, I would be happy to accompany them to New York and load them up in a boat and wave after them just as far as I could see them as they depart to the land of their heart's desire. We're living in an epidemic of mudslinging and muckraking and character assassination, and the assassins are having a field day defaming both the dead and the living. At least vultures feed only on the dead. Every great American from Paul Revere down has been vilified and scandalized. It has become a disease. It's about time we had a kind word about what is still good in this country and what was good about our forefathers and what is still right in the nation they founded. I don't intend to waste my time on this smelly business of specializing in scandal. It rubs off on you, for one thing, and it's a waste of time. A bulldog can whip a skunk any time, but it's not worth it. And it all boils down to this, that there'll never be a better America until we have better Americans, and that means a better breed than some of them are today. How are we going to have patriotism and honor and decency and integrity and morality and character if we live as though there were no king in Israel and every man can do that which is not right but what he wants to do? In the last days, Woodrow Wilson, broken and disillusioned, said, The sum of the matter is that our civilization cannot survive materially if it is not redeemed spiritually. And Douglas MacArthur, in the latter part of his day, said the problem is basically theological. Now, that's a tremendous statement for a general to make. It must be of the Spirit if we're to save the flesh. And I think it's significant that near the end of their careers, one of America's top statesmen and one of her greatest soldiers uh, uh, carried the decision to the public that uh, sounds like a preacher talking. The problem is... Basically, theological. Uh, there was read to you a moment ago those words of our Lord, <clears throat> Ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. We're hearing a lot about freedom these days. Let freedom reign. But uh, although we hear sermons on this text, it is really not right to take a text uh, that starts with the word and and use it as a complete statement of what God is trying to say in that particular case. And when Jesus said, Ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free, that was the Emancipation Proclamation for all mankind. But if you take it without its context, just that one verse, you only have two abstractions, uh, truth and freedom. And the first word in that verse is and, and so that makes us look up a verse. And, and he said, Ye shall know the truth only if ye continue in my word. Then are ye my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Now, don't you see what a difference that makes? It's like Romans 
12, 1 and 2. I hear preachers sometimes preach on be not conformed to the world, but transformed by the renewing of your mind. And that's good advice, yes, and it's the word of God. But the first word's and, and you need the first verse. I beseech you, therefore, that you present your body as a living sacrifice, and be not conformed to the world, but transformed. Now, that's the whole message. And if you go back still one verse further up, we read that many believed on Jesus when he said some of these things. However, it was a superficial faith because a few verses further down, he called them the children of the devil. Just as in John 2, where I read that many believed on him when they saw his miracles, but he did not believe in them. It's the same word in the original. They believed with a superficial faith, and Jesus knew it was superficial because he knew what was in man. Now the sequence is this, if you get it all. We believe, we continue in the word, we become disciples, we know the truth, and we are set free, and that's the only way to freedom. And so I would call it, if you want to use alliteration, freedom through faith that follows. The Bible has a lot to say about keeping this thing up once we make a profession of faith. If ye continue in my word, patient continuance, whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein. After the day of Pentecost, they didn't try to stay on the mountaintop all the time. They didn't try to go through this world singing hallelujah and patting their feet all the time. They continued daily. It has been said that nothing is more harmful to spiritual experience than too many spiritual experiences. Now that may sound contradictory, but it isn't. Paul went up to the third heaven and he never could tell what he saw after he got back. The great trip, I suppose, if some folks had gone there, they would have got it in technicolor and got out posters and gone everywhere lecturing on my trip to the third heaven. But God gave him a thorn in the flesh to keep him from getting proud about it. And you learn that the thing that really matters is the sufficient grace of God from day to day. The New Testament doesn't have much to say about special experiences. Of course, nowadays we are hearing a great deal about certain subjective experiences that seem to take care of everything once and for all and rule out much growth in grace. We read, Ye are my friends, if ye do what I command you. If ye know these things, happy are ye if ye do them. He that doeth the will of my father, the same as my brother, sister, and mother. Why call ye me, Lord, Lord, and do not what I say? He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me, and I will manifest myself to him. He that heareth my words and doeth them shall be like a man that built his house on a rock. Not every one that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, but he that doeth the will of my father. Blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. Be ye doers of the word, not hearers only. And then the Great Commission, and many times I have read it from the pulpit and left out two words on purpose. Then I've asked the congregation what two words did I leave out, and nowhere in this country have I found more than three or four who ever noticed the difference. I don't know whether they weren't listening. I thought we'd all know it by now, but the two words are to observe, teaching them to observe, to do it. You haven't taught your class anything until you've taught them to do it, and we haven't learned anything until we've learned to do it. Charles G. Finney, the great revivalist, said, A revival is a new beginning of obedience to God. Now, that sounds very trite, and there isn't much to shout hallelujah about in that, but that's what it is. Revival isn't a lot of hooping and hollering and folks joining the church. 
It's a new decision to get right with God and with people. We need to restructure our thinking today, both about the country and about the church. We've had enough oratory and celebration. It's time to be what we are. We ought to be Americans. The word American is an adjective and a noun. We say so-and-so's an American, that's a noun. We say he's an American man, that's an adjective. And the same thing is true of the word Christian. It's time to be what we are and be Christian Christians. Jesus didn't say, be the salt of the earth. He said, that's what you are. He didn't say, be the light of the world. He said, that's what you are. He didn't say, be my witness. He said, you are my witnesses. If we ever have another real revival, it'll be spearheaded by a persecuted minority scorning the values of this world and living by rigid discipline. Anybody can look well at a dress parade. And too many of the saints today are out to wear medals and not stars. And too much of Americanism and too much Christianity is like the Reubenites over there in the book of Judges when Deborah and Barak won the battle and the tribe of Reuben stayed at home. They were patriotic, but they didn't go to the battle. And as the context bears out, they played little tunes on their shepherds' pipes and didn't hear the trumpet call to battle. And sometimes watch Sunday morning crowds of well-fed, well-clad, well-housed church members sing, <clears throat> The Son of God goes forth to war. Onward, Christian soldiers. It's hard to resist the desire to march down through the crowd and say, Now hold everything. That's good. But just what battles have you been in? Are you wearing medals or scarves? Amy Carmichael had it right. You haven't followed Jesus far if you have no wound, no scar. Last winter I was down in Florida preaching for about ten weeks in a row, and uh, I was out at Shell Point at Fort Myers, a lovely retirement center, and uh, on uh, Sunday morning there was an old general, 88 years of age, who came to the service, and then he came over to talk with me one afternoon. He was a walking encyclopedia of information. He'd known every president since Theodore Roosevelt. He'd been a general with Patton in the Second World War. And he told a story that I can't shake off. He said, in the Battle of Normandy, I was standing with Patton, and it had really been tough. And he said, here came about 30-odd boys who had been all shot up. And some of them would die in just a little while. <clears throat> he said the general went over to them and said, Boys, how are you? And everyone who could get his hand up to his head saluted. And they all said, Fine, general. And most of them nearly dead. He said we walked away from there, and I noticed he didn't say anything, and I didn't say anything. And finally, I looked out of the corner of my eye, and the tears were streaming down his face. They called him old blood and guts, but that got him. And when I read that, I wonder if we're growing that kind of Christians today, not just the Christmas and Easter kind, the Sunday morning kind, fair-weather saints. Long ago, an old warrior wrote to a young recruit, Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. He knew what he was talking about because he had been all shot up. Five times beaten with 39 stripes, three times beaten with rods, one stone, 
Three times shipwrecked, a night and a day in the deep, perils of waters of robbers, my own countrymen, perils by the heathen of the city, in the wilderness, in the sea, and false brethren, weariness, painfulness, and watchings, often hunger, thirst, fastings, cold, and nakedness. And beside all this, the care of the churches, not enough to kill anybody by itself. And with all of that, he could still say, I fought a good fight, I finished the course. I've kept the faith. I've been faithful to the fight, I've been faithful to the faith, and I've been faithful to the finish. And I'm looking for my reward. And he sat in the Roman jail. He wasn't writing his memoirs in a villa down on the French Riviera. He was in a jail in the middle of Rome, waiting to have his head chopped off. He had stocks and bonds. Oh, yes, stocks for his feet and bonds around his wrists. And he wrote to Timothy and said, Bring that old coat of mine and my books. That's about all he had. Yet I think if Almighty God had called over the parapets of heaven and said, How are you doing, Paul? I believe he just saluted and said, Fine, Lord. My friends, the taste of this business is not enough. We need to get into it. And the test of this business is whether you're just a good soldier when the bands are playing and the bugles are blowing and the flags are waving. But when the fighting is its hottest and your comrades are being killed around you and you're battling with the stub of a sword, and all men forsake you, when the great general calls, and we do have a great general, the other day a chaplain said he was with MacArthur on Corregidor, and he said the general attended every service I held, and one day I congratulated him on it, and General MacArthur said, I'm the commanding general here, but... One of these days I'll not be here. I shall have gone the way of all flesh here today and gone tomorrow. He said, Chaplain, you are not serving that kind of a general. You are serving no ordinary four-star general. You are serving the seven-star general described in the book of Revelation, who has seven stars in his right hand, who is alive forevermore, and whose kingdom endures forever. That's your general. And when that seven-star general calls down to us and says, How are you doing? I wonder if you're able to say everything's all right, Lord. There are a lot of things I don't understand. <clears throat> but the strife will not be long. Today the noise of battle and the next the victor soon. This is a strange war we're in as Christians. It's already been won. Jesus won it, you know, on the cross and out of the open grave. Our water is back this way. We're just engaged in mopping up operations. But it's still a fight of faith. And it's a time for renewed pledges of allegiance, and it's about time. There are too many faded documents and declarations grown dim, not only the Declaration of Independence. They're doing their best to preserve it, and it's barely legible. As you know, even John Hancock's bold signature will fade in time. But the worst of it is not the fading of a paper. We're forgetting its original intent and ultimate purpose. We need some new editions of it in human flesh. And then there are too many marriage certificates that are losing their significance. I had a million divorces last year in this land. The other day I heard of two old folks in a restaurant. She couldn't hear well, and he thought he'd cheer her up, and he said, I'm proud of you. She said, hey. He said, I'm proud of you. She said, I didn't get it. He said, I said, I'm proud of you. And she said, I'm tired of you, too. 
Now, too many that are tired of each other today. I don't know. I wonder if we got some here this morning. You wouldn't admit it, but uh, the certificate's getting dim. We need to renew that covenant. Let me say to you, you never miss the water till the well goes dry, and you'd better make most of the fact that your dear one is probably by your side this morning. Then when the day comes that you would give just about everything you have for one day, any old day, for the touch of a vanished hand and the sound of a voice that escape. We take each other for granted more ways than one today. We do it in the church. Church covenants don't mean what they used to. Any other organization with no more loyalty to its founder, no more joy in its program, and that uses as much raw material and turns out as poor a finished product as the average church would be out of business. If I dropped into the average church today as a non-Christian and watched a handful of church members during a so-called revival trying to get more recruits for the army of the Lord when most of the outfit they already had has gone AWOL, I'd say either Christianity is not what it's supposed to be, or we've been sold a cheap brand and inoculated with a mild form till we've been immunized against the real thing. Joel said, I'm tired of the pagans going around saying, where is your God? Where is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob? And I'm embarrassed that the pagans walk by our churches over America and sometimes watch our feeble ceremonies moving corpses from one mortician to another, sometimes preaching a dynamite gospel and living firecracker lives. It's time to be what we are or take down our sign. We need to renew our covenants of dedication. If you're a Christian, Romans 7, 4 says you're married to Jesus Christ. And James says that if you're a worldling, you are an adulterer and adulteress because you are married to Christ. Because that verse doesn't apply only to physical adultery. Have you noticed there never has been a culture since Christianity began where a New Testament Christian can feel at home? There never has been a culture where a New Testament Christian can be at home. If you feel at home, you belong to the culture. You don't belong to Jesus Christ. Birds of a feather flock together, and that's your native habitat in the world, if that's what you love. The professing church today is like the Jewish exiles in Babylon in Psalm 137, captives of this age, without a song, and saying, how can we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? And the only way you can solve this problem is by making Jesus Christ your Lord. When you do that, you will be a better American and a better citizen and a better church member and a better husband, father, mother, young person, businessman, whatever you do. But that making Jesus Lord must be visible because he said before man. It must be audible because he said with the mouth. And it must be credible because he said with the heart. <clears throat> when it's credible, when it's real. And when you're not ashamed to confess him before people, and when you're not ashamed to confess him with the mouth, the Bible says the way to be saved is to believe that God raised Jesus from the dead, that's the first move, and then confess out loud with the mouth, Jesus Christ as Lord, thou shalt be saved. And I hope you don't go out this morning accepting this sermon as information. I hope it hasn't gone in one ear and out the other. As I said at the outset, one thing is worse than not going to church. 
And that's knowing and not doing anything about what we hear. Some of you have probably read the autobiography of Elton Trueblood who preached here not too long ago. And he says, and makes an amazing statement, that his liberal views were changed by C.S. Lewis rather lately. And Lewis said, a man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus Christ said would not be a great moral teacher. He'd be either a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be a devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man is the son of God or he's a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a, a time and spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come along with this patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He didn't leave that open to us. He didn't intend to give us that option. And Chuck Colson, you've been reading his book, Born Again, he was also moved mightily by this testimony, and he said of Jesus he was either a god or a raving lunatic. There is less heresy in rejecting him altogether than to remake him into something he wasn't, something he isn't. If anybody listening to me now is uh, saying, well, I'm willing to accept him as the greatest moral leader of all time, yes, he didn't ask for that. You don't have that option. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to God but by me. No man can say that. Before Abraham was, I am. No man could say that. All things have been delivered to me of my Father. No man can say that. All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. No man can say that. I and my Father are one. No man can say that. He's either what he said or he's an imposter. And you take him all out once for all. He doesn't want your compliments. He wants your commitment. Total. Utter, absolute. I get a little tired sometimes of this habit of inviting folks down the aisle in a sort of a, an apologetic way as though Jesus Christ were standing with his hat in his hand waiting to be accepted. I don't find that word much anyhow in the New Testament, but I do find believe, receive, trust, obey, follow. That's what he wants. And I wonder if everyone listening to me has done that. No mortal can with him compare among the sons of me. Fairer is he than all the fair that fell the heavenly train. I'm glad I can preach to Christ who was what he said he was and he is what he says he is and he's the same yesterday and today and forever. And he wants you to come just exactly like you are. You can't come any other way and that's why we're going to sing just as I am without one plea. And I give you the opportunity this morning to do whatever the Holy Spirit tells you you ought to do. If it's to lay aside all your excuses and all your doubts and say, I take Jesus Christ this morning for what he claimed to be, as Savior and Lord. Or if you wish to rededicate your life, or if you wish to come into the fellowship of this church, opportunity is given as we sing this wonderful song.